Welcome to the Holistic Psychiatry Podcast. I'm Courtney Snyder, a physician and holistic adult and child psychiatrist. In today's podcast, I'll be discussing ADHD, or Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. This diagnosis has been given to approximately 11% of children in this country. It is estimated that 75% of those diagnosed as children will go on to experience significant symptoms into adulthood. The prevalence of ADHD appears to be increasing. In 1990, 902,000 were diagnosed, and now it's approximately 4 million. Of these 4 million, 3.5 million are receiving medication. A statistic less known, however, is one from the Walsh Research Institute database, which looked at 5,600 children and adults with a diagnosis of ADHD and found that 68% of them had elevated copper and relatively low zinc levels. This is important because high copper is associated with low dopamine, which translates to poor attention, and it's associated with high norepinephrine, which can contribute to hyperactivity. This is also important to know because it's not terribly difficult to treat high copper and low zinc, and this is something that we find to be quite impactful when addressing ADHD from a holistic or integrative approach. Medications do not address this or other nutrient imbalances, sources of inflammation and toxicity that can be driving ADHD symptoms and potentially leading to other health issues in both the short and long term. In this podcast, though I'll discuss what ADHD is, how it is typically diagnosed, the course over the lifespan, and associated conditions, I'll be focusing on what appear to be the root causes of ADHD, how we evaluate those root causes, and how these can be addressed from a holistic or integrative or functional medicine approach. First, to put this in a historical perspective, ADHD was first recognized in 1902, and stimulant medications for this were first used in 1937. Interestingly, from 1940 to 1960, ADHD was referred to as minimal brain damage or dysfunction, and it was speculated to be the result of head injury, infection, or toxic damage. This description at least raises the question of why someone actually has ADHD. Now, this is something that current conventional understanding doesn't strongly consider. More often what happens is someone is diagnosed based on their symptoms and placed on a medication. There's actually a lot of evidence that a genetic vulnerability to toxicity or what we call oxidative stress including that which relates to high copper, is at play and which I'll be talking more about. Though diagnoses are important to communicate what groups of symptoms someone is having, from my perspective, the diagnosis doesn't tell me why someone is having those symptoms. From a holistic approach, I aim to address not the diagnosis, but rather the underlying root causes. 
However, it's still worth reviewing the diagnostic criteria. So first, in considering whether someone has ADHD, the first question is, does this person have abnormal or persistent inattention or abnormal or persistent hyperactivity and impulsivity? This is usually established through a detailed history with information from parents and teachers and an interview of the child. The diagnosis can be made by a psychologist, clinical social worker, nurse practitioner, neurologist, psychiatrist, or pediatrician. For adults, similarly, the ideal is to get information from two settings, and this can be the direct history provided by an individual and ideally from a family member. I'll first go through symptoms of inattention and then symptoms reflective of hyperactivity impulsivity, and I'll be paraphrasing Many of these diagnostic criteria you can easily find online. So for inattention, what is required is six or more of these nine symptoms. And this is for children up to the age of 16. 17 and beyond, five symptoms are required for diagnosis. Often fails to give close attention to details or makes careless mistakes trouble holding attention on tasks or play activities, often not seeming to listen when spoken to directly, often doesn't follow through on instructions or fails to finish schoolwork, chores, or duties. And all of these, there's translations for adults. Often has trouble organizing tasks and activities, often dislikes, avoids, or is reluctant to do tasks that require mental effort over a long period of time, often loses things, is often easily distracted, and often forgetful. So again, six of those nine need to be met. Or, and most individuals would have both inattention and hyperactivity, however, some individuals have primarily inattention, and other individuals have primarily hyperactivity and impulsivity. So again, six of these nine symptoms for children under the age of 17, and for anyone older than 17, uh, five symptoms are required. Often fidgets or taps hands or feet, squirms in seat, often leaves seat in situations where remaining seated is expected, often runs about or climbs in situations where this is not appropriate, often unable to play or take part in leisure activities quietly, is often on the go, acting as if driven by a motor, often talks excessively, often blurts out answers before a question has been completed, has trouble waiting their turn, interrupts or intrudes on others. The next question after these list of symptoms is were these present before the age of 7 for a child or before the age of 12 for an adult? Also, we ask, are these symptoms present in two settings, usually at school or work in the case of an adult, and at home? And this is where the checklists are helpful, again, to be completed by parents and teachers. Is there clear impairment of functioning? And this is very important when you consider the argument that children are being overdiagnosed is there needs to be impairment in functioning socially, academically, or in the case of adults, occupationally. 
And lastly, these symptoms are not better explained by another mental disorder. The symptoms don't only happen in this course, for example, of a psychotic episode or schizophrenia. Um, We want to make sure that the symptoms aren't due to an episode of anxiety or inattention due to depression or a learning issue or hearing or vision problems or even a thyroid condition. Now, I'll be talking about a number of physiologic factors that appear to be impacting brain health, and specifically in this case, inattention and hyperactivity. And though from a conventional perspective, things like low thyroid should be ruled out and hearing and vision issues should be ruled out, I would say overwhelmingly people dealing with ADHD have physiologic root causes. Lastly, in terms of the diagnosis, there are three types of diagnoses one can receive. They are all under the umbrella of ADHD. So there's the combined presentation if both criteria are met for inattention and hyperactivity and impulsivity for the past six months. Then there's the predominantly inattentive type. And then there's the predominantly hyperactive and impulsive type. I'll also add that males to female, the ratio is three to one. So this is more common in boys. In most cases, ADHD persists into adulthood, although the hyperactivity can lessen over time. There are a number of what we would call comorbidities. So these are conditions that frequently occur with ADHD, and these include learning disabilities, which are in 30 to 40% of individuals with ADHD. Other behavioral disorders are common, including conduct disorder and oppositional defiant disorder, anger control problems, or even intermittent explosive disorder, or maybe perhaps not meeting criteria, but tantrums or even rage episodes. Anxiety can be occurring alongside ADHD, as can depression and sleep disorders. And when I talk about the physiologic root causes, I think it will make better sense why some of these conditions are so common. For example, uh, since I already mentioned copper, high copper can contribute to anxiety, depression, and sleep issues. There can also be other what we would call neurobiologic issues such as motor tic disorders or Tourette's. Adults and teens, we may see uh, substance abuse disorders. And in both children and adults, there can be chronic feelings of frustration, guilt, shame. Adults can have problems with performance in their work or in their careers. And children can be frequently getting in trouble and not fitting in with their peers, having problems with getting along with family members. So we don't want to underestimate how much impact this condition can have on people's daily lives. It is well known that genetics play a role and that ADHD can run in families. And it is known that alterations in dopamine and norepinephrine are at play. Now, if you haven't heard of dopamine or norepinephrine, these are neurotransmitters or chemicals that help nerve cells communicate with one another. 
It also appears that particular parts of the brain are impacted in ADHD. Specifically, there are alterations in the frontal, cortical, and frontal basal ganglia. So these are the basically front part of the brain. And these areas have been implicated using both neuropsychologic testing and neuroimaging. So just to oversimplify, keep in mind that the circuitry between these seemingly impacted parts of the brain are predominantly dopaminergic, and it appears that the hypofunctioning or the decrease in functioning of these dopaminergic pathways is the consistent feature of ADHD. Other factors also mentioned in conventional literature include exposure to lead or pesticides in early childhood, premature birth or low birth weight, brain injury. Despite toxicity being mentioned, it is very rare to hear of a child with ADHD being evaluated or treated for toxicity, at least in conventional medicine. The more typical approach would be diagnosis followed by prescribing of a stimulant medication. The classic example of medication is Ritalin or methylphenidate, which has a dopamine agonistic effect, meaning it acts as if it is dopamine. Of those treated with stimulant medication, 70% appear to derive a degree of benefit. And as I mentioned earlier, the number of children on ADHD medications has gone from 600,000 in 1990 to 3.5 million in 2016, and that would be in this country. There can be a number of side effects to ADHD medication, including loss of appetite, weight loss, anxiety, irritability, sleep issues, headaches, tick disorders, and in some cases, psychosis in the form of hallucinations. So while this is obviously problematic, I would say also extremely problematic is the reality that the underlying causes are not being addressed. And it does appear that there are a number of issues contributing to ADHD, and the one that I'll be focusing on that is especially common and fairly easy to treat would be a copper-zinc imbalance. Copper and zinc are not toxic metals, but they're rather trace metals that we need in our body. They are normally kept at about a one-to-one ratio by proteins called metallothionines, which I'll talk about. The Walsh Research Institute, which studies the relationship between specific nutrient imbalances and brain-related symptoms, measured nutrient levels in 5,600 adults and children with ADHD and found that 68% had elevated copper and relatively low zinc. But how does high copper relate to inattention and hyperactivity? So copper is what we would call a cofactor in the synthesis of norepinephrine. So dopamine is, as I mentioned, a neurotransmitter, and it's converted to norepinephrine. And it is converted by the enzyme called dopamine beta-hydroxylase. And this enzyme requires copper, vitamin C, and oxygen to function. So when copper is elevated, 
there will be more of this conversion of dopamine to norepinephrine. So dopamine levels will decrease and norepinephrine levels will rise. Decreased dopamine levels contribute to inattention. And increased norepinephrine, or another term would be adrenaline, can increase hyperactivity. And having these neurotransmitters out of balance not only can cause ADHD symptoms, but in some cases can cause high anxiety, depression, panic, mood swings, and insomnia. Temper, rage, and problems regulating mood are often seen as well, but not always. And again, this can explain some of the other conditions that we will commonly see with ADHD. I do have a podcast devoted to high copper and the many ways it can cause various brain-related symptoms. I hope some of what I've been discussing illustrates how our nutrient status isn't solely based on what we eat. A significant part comes through our genetics. And as I mentioned as well, a significant part comes from how toxic we are. If we are toxic, those metallothionine proteins can be overwhelmed and not doing their job to regulate zinc and copper. This is why high copper and low zinc or a high copper-zinc ratio is considered a sign of oxidative stress. I have a podcast on oxidative stress as well. Other causes of high copper beyond metallothionine proteins being impacted either genetically, so there could be a genetic weakness, or overwhelmed by toxicity, could also be a zinc deficiency. And zinc is needed for these metallothionine proteins to be expressed genetically. So if someone is low in zinc, they could secondarily develop high copper. And low zinc could be for a number of reasons. And here again, I have a podcast all about zinc. And a common reason with ADHD is the presence of pyrrol disorder. And 18% of individuals with ADHD have high copper. This was through that same database with the Walsh Research Institute. So high pyrroles in the urine can lead to a deficiency in zinc, which then can cause copper levels to go up. So it's not uncommon for someone to have high copper and high pyrroles and low zinc. Other factors that could be contributing to high copper could be the input of copper could be excessive. Well water is higher in copper Certain foods, especially shellfish and chocolate, are high in copper. And where most people could have these foods and drink well water without any problem, if someone has a genetic weakness on those metallothionine proteins, then they may have to limit their exposure in order to not become toxic, in addition to a nutrient protocol. I'll also add here that Women and girls specifically can be impacted by higher estrogen levels. This could be with the onset of puberty. Perhaps a girl starts to have new problems with attention or someone 
starting on birth control could start to have ADHD-like symptoms because the estrogen can make copper go up, again, for those who have problems regulating copper. Postpartum depression is very significantly associated with high copper, and research has found that 94% of women with postpartum depression, anxiety, or psychosis have high copper. Also with hormone replacement therapy, a new onset of symptoms could be related to the added estrogen. So how do we treat high copper aside from, as I mentioned, avoiding input? And if someone does have problems regulating copper, avoiding added estrogen, we use a nutrient protocol. So specific supplements that would aim to bring copper levels down and this typically will include zinc. And in adults, sometimes I'll use molybdenum as well. Also included in the nutrient protocol are antioxidants and nutrients to address other nutrient imbalances that may be present, such as pyrrole disorder or under or over methylation. I should mention here too that B6 is required to make dopamine as well as serotonin and GABA. So serotonin is for mood and sleep, and GABA has a calming effect. So B6, being at sufficient levels, is also important in addressing ADHD and low dopamine activity. Keep in mind also that... The doses that we use for these nutrient protocols through the Walsh Research Institute are doses that are many times the recommended daily allowance. And this is because we are working against uh, genetic nutrient imbalances. So, for example, uh, adult RDA for zinc is 15 milligrams, but we will often use much higher levels than this to achieve what would be considered an optimal zinc level. And we do track both zinc and copper levels using blood work. There are other seeming root causes of ADHD beyond high copper or copper-zinc imbalances. And these are factors that could occur alongside copper-zinc imbalances or by themselves cause ADHD. As I mentioned, 18% of individuals with ADHD in the Walsh Research Institute database were found to have elevated pyrroles. Another nutrient imbalance that is associated with ADHD that we see less commonly, and even over time it has become less and less common, is overmethylation. And this causes an increase in neurotransmitter activity of both uh, dopamine and of serotonin. And I'll be doing a future podcast on overmethylation. Toxicity of any form can contribute to ADHD symptoms. So this could be chemicals, metals, biotoxins such as those from mold and candida. And keep in mind that toxins can impact both the development of the brain in utero so before the child is born, and then in their earlier development. And separately, the toxicity can contribute to a depletion of antioxidants, 
inflammation and secondary copper-zinc imbalances and secondary elevation in pyrroles. So there's a lot of ways toxicity can impact brain health. It has been shown that children who have been exposed acutely or chronically to lead, arsenic, aluminum, mercury, or cadmium are often left with permanent neurologic consequences that include attention deficit. Many of these toxins, I've mentioned metals here, but also chemicals and biotoxins, can have a synergistic effect. So it's accumulation of these toxins that we are all more and more susceptible to, and especially children because they are in the midst of a developmental window where their brains are are developing. As I mentioned, metals, including lead, cadmium, and aluminum, are the main culprits on brain imaging. Childhood lead exposure is associated with alterations in brain structure consistent with that of ADHD. Particular chemicals have been shown to disrupt dopamine activity in the prefrontal cortex, again, something that we see in ADHD. I'd like to hone in on pesticides since that's something that we all get a lot of exposure to through foods and through inhalation. These chemicals um, are used primarily to kill insects by suppressing a necessary enzyme for nerve function, thereby disrupting their brains and nervous system. They appear, however, to be disrupting our brains and nervous system as well, and many studies have linked them to lower IQ and developmental disorders, specifically autism and ADHD. Mold toxins will also contribute to ADHD symptoms in a number of ways, and endotoxins, and these would be toxins made by microbes in the body, such as candida, which naturally occurs in our gastrointestinal tract. However, if someone has had a lot of exposure to antibiotics, for example, there could be overgrowth of candida, and candida makes toxins that just adds to this accumulation of toxicity and what we call oxidative stress, and then secondary inflammation and secondary nutrient imbalances. I have a podcast on candida if you'd like to learn more about that. Remember, too, that children are in environments where they have a lot of exposures potentially to lead, asbestos, radon, water damage, and thus mold toxins, and now electromagnetic frequencies. And electromagnetic frequencies, or what is emitted through wireless devices, but also there's... EMF from other sources, but increasingly we're getting more and more exposure from wireless technology. And this is increasing exponentially in school settings. So consider EMF another source of oxidative stress. We know that EMF causes oxidative stress just as toxins can cause oxidative stress. And we know that oxidative stress can lead to copper-zinc imbalances, increased pyrroles, and we know that EMF can increase mast cell activation and then contribute to high histamine states, which can also impact attention. There are many reports coming out 
showing that decreasing electromagnetic radiation exposure can help increase a child's functioning, especially children with ADHD, autism, and other neurologic issues. A Yale study found that cell phone radiation exposure caused mice exposed prenatally to have ADHD-like symptoms of hyperactivity and poor memory. So in response to this and a growing body of research, many obstetricians, doctors, and public health educators have signed a major initiative called the Baby Safe Project to recommend that pregnant women reduce wireless exposure in order to protect the developing brain. Another potential factor in ADHD could be food sensitivity and reactions to food additives, so artificial coloring, flavorings, and preservatives. And taking one of these out at a time will not necessarily show impact, but taking out multiple additives can. And the way to do this is to simply move to a diet that is without processed foods and working to a diet that's primarily whole foods and preferably organic, so as to not have the pesticide exposure. Sugar is problematic for a number of reasons. By itself, it contributes to oxidative stress, but it also will feed those problematic microbes such as candida and or mold if it's present in the body. Gluten and dairy, through their inflammatory effects, can also contribute to ADHD symptoms. Some individuals will have sensitivities to other foods, though I won't spend much time here. Know that attachment also impacts our ability to be able to focus and to regulate our behaviors. Lastly, thyroid conditions, specifically low thyroid can impact neurotransmitter systems. And thyroid damage in ADHD has been associated in part due to toxicity. I mentioned earlier that there can be co-occurring conditions with ADHD, and sometimes these can point to other imbalances that are happening. For example, if a child has significant oppositional defiant tendencies, which I would see along the spectrum of anxiety. However, it falls diagnostically under the realm of a behavioral disorder. So this classically fits with undermethylation. So if a child has oppositional defiant disorder and ADHD, there would be very high suspicion that they are undermethylated and I've talked about undermethylation in a previous podcast, and that they have a copper-zinc imbalance. Temper tantrums or intermittent explosive disorder would be associated very commonly with high copper. Depression and anxiety can be related to high copper, but also high pyroles or a methylation imbalance. And there's other underlying factors potentially there as well. And I look forward to talking about depression in a future podcast. So before I finish, I'd like to comment on some of the controversies around ADHD. And one would be this question of 
is it advantageous to have ADHD? There's some arguments that those people with ADHD have increased energy and creativity. And some would argue it's simply someone's personality and should not be pathologized, but that our systems need to change so that individuals with ADHD can be better able to thrive. And while I do agree with this to a point, I also take issue with this because I do see ADHD as symptoms that are reflecting oxidative stress and these root causes of brain-related conditions that are impacting not just the brain, but also the body. And left unchecked, this could contribute to health issues in the short term as well as the long term. So there have been studies of ADHD and a later progression into dementia. And in the last 15 years, there have been eight published studies that have suggested that ADHD may be a risk factor for neurodegeneration. The very factors that appear to be causing ADHD, namely nutrient imbalances and toxicity with secondary inflammation, appear to be at play in dementia. So if these are never addressed, then know that chronic toxicity can lead to chronic inflammation, which can lead to neurodegeneration. So I would argue that addressing toxicity, addressing inflammation, addressing um, nutrient imbalances would be optimal and not only prevent the individual from potentially needing medication or staying on medication or needing as much medication, but also protecting them going forward. Another controversy has been about the increasing prevalence of ADHD, and many will argue that it is, again, overly diagnosed and that it reflects a failure of educational institutions to be able to educate these children. But I do think, and I think most teachers would argue, that collectively children are changing, that collectively they are less attentive, more restless, and more impulsive, as are adults. I suspect that the bell curve for all of us is shifting, and with that, more children are meeting criteria for ADHD. Many of the variables I've just discussed can be at play, and together, these variables can be causing a shift in that curve. It is unlikely just one thing. But if we look at the areas that I've mentioned, starting with toxicity, is we're all being increasingly exposed to toxins. And not all of us have the same vulnerability to toxins. Given the same exposures, some children will be tipped into high oxidative stress and brain-related conditions or other health conditions, and some children will have more robust antioxidant systems, be able to weather that better uh, to a point. The other factor that can impact our brain health significantly is our microbiome. And increasingly, our microbiome is being impacted not only by the use of antibiotics, but also by the increase in C-section births, which now are very common and appear to impact the microbiome. Compared with offspring born by vaginal delivery, offspring born by way of C-section delivery have 
increased odds of autism spectrum disorders and ADHD. There is a great deal of research looking at the role of vaginal delivery in the seed of the microbiome. Again, the microbiome is the trillions of microbes in our gastrointestinal tract. And basically, with vaginal delivery, bacteria get into the baby's mouth in a way that it doesn't happen with cesarean delivery. The other factor impacting our microbiome is a diet high in processed foods, carbohydrates, and low in whole foods and fiber. So a microbiome that is not healthy is a microbiome that's not going to absorb nutrients as well. It's a microbiome that is going to lead us more in the direction of inflammation and toxicity. A third controversy is related to why more and more adults who never had ADHD or symptoms of ADHD are now being diagnosed. And if they're being diagnosed and they did not have evidence before the age of 12, then they're being misdiagnosed. They are acquiring ADHD in their adult years. And there are a number of reasons for this. And this is where in evaluating someone, and this is the same with children or adults, a timeline is extremely helpful. While yes, you can do fancy testing to show how poor someone's attention is, most people already are aware of that. And yes, they can be given a name of their diagnosis and what ails them, and that could be ADHD, and that can be validating because they knew something wasn't right. And a doctor can put them on a stimulant medication that very likely will be helpful. But none of this asks the questions of why did someone who never had ADHD develop this problem. And clues in a timeline can shift how we think about this. So things that I would be asking in my evaluations are, did you have any illnesses Were you recently on antibiotics or on antibiotics around the time of the onset of symptoms? Did you move into a new home or have a change in jobs or any new environmental exposures like water damage, chemical exposures, new well water, or other sources of high copper, or a change in EMF exposure? Sometimes toxicity and what we call oxidative stress can build up over time. So it's not necessarily the case that one insult is going to directly and immediately cause symptoms. Other questions could be, did you start a new medication? Did the utility company recently put a smart meter on your house, which would relate to EMF exposure? Did you have a recent traumatic event or an onset of a new stressor? Did you start on birth control or hormone replacement, or get a copper IUD, or did this girl start puberty? Has anything changed dietarily? Are you eating a lot of chocolate? And so on. And this is also where physical symptoms can be helpful, because many of the factors that I've discussed would also have physical traits that could point to those being issues. And in previous podcasts related to a number of these topics, I talk about those physical traits. Though I mentioned how ADHD is diagnosed, I would say more importantly in my own work is doing blood work to check copper and zinc levels, checking pyrrole levels, which are 
by way of a urine test, organic acid testing or microbial organic acid testing can be helpful in identifying if candida is present or clostridia. Mycotoxin testing can be very helpful. Metals testing is available and can be done using hair samples. I use urine testing more commonly. The most comprehensive would be a combination of hair, urine, and stool. And then treatments I won't focus on because I think they become evident. I talked about how we address copper-zinc imbalances, and with metal toxicity, I'll do a future podcast on that. I've talked about antioxidant support, and also I have a podcast on toxicity and how we support detoxification. And just as I haven't focused on medication treatment for ADHD here, I'm also not focusing on a number of the behavioral and therapeutic approaches that can be very helpful and can help with this aspect of neuroplasticity, which is the ability of the brain to be rewired. And I look forward to doing a future podcast on that topic as well. I hope you found this topic informative and useful If you know anyone who has ADHD or who has a child with ADHD and you think they could benefit or find this interesting, please consider sharing. For more information about root causes of brain-related symptoms, please consider visiting my website at CourtneySnyderMD.com where you're welcome to subscribe and get notification of future podcasts. If you'd like to help me get this type of information out into the world, please consider liking, commenting, sharing, or engaging on one of the social media sites. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Thank you for listening. I look forward to connecting with you in a future podcast. And until then, take care. Bye-bye.